Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. Today is episode 31. It's titled, The Cost of Following Jesus. Today is a tough set of verses, and if you ask me, these are the types of sermons that need, or I should say, these are the types of Bible verses that need to be taught about in church. If we don't balance the whole warm and fuzzy feel-good stuff, let's say, with the tough realities of what it means to be a Christian, then... Well, preachers and teachers are, would be just deceiving people because they're only disclosing one side of the coin, right? Now, when I first read these verses, I asked myself, how many people, if they heard a Christian say these things, would in fact consider them not only rude and probably lacking compassion as well, but maybe not even Christian at all? Maybe perhaps that's the conclusion they would come to, that if a, a, a person said what Jesus said, and not only here, but other places, I think many people, because Christianity has been misrepresented, that people would consider them to be not Christian at all. And that's the other part of only disclosing one side of the coin. You deceive people and you build a false culture, a false reality, and we'll talk about that later. So, as we go through these verses, I want you to consider what your reaction would be if a preacher, pastor, priest, or bishop said the same things that Jesus said in these verses, okay? So let's dive into scripture. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 through 22 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe, and that's interesting, right? Sounds very military-like. That's because there are many terms in scripture that have to do with Greek military terms. There's many places in scripture that that's mentioned. So Jesus absolutely gave orders. Okay, so let's let's note that. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was a scribe, by the way. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now that, that last part is spicy, and we'll get into that. But first let's talk about the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. Jesus didn't tell the man, No, you can't follow me. But he told him the truth, without painting a glamorized version of what it was like to follow him. This is the opposite of techniques used by many evangelicals today. But Jesus wanted the man to know what it would really be like. So now, this commentary, I thought, did a great job pointing to the warm and fuzzy evangelical gospel being taught in the world right now. And it's... It's an, not only do we have false gospels being taught, but we have imbalanced gospels taught, where people will pick and choose. To me, that reminds me of a Pharisee, right? Because now that I know fully what Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes did, they were like, yeah, the Bible's holy, and they enforced all 613 laws on other people, but they themselves picked whatever arbitrary ones they felt like following, because they were holy anyways by receiving and hearing they weren't holy because of obedience so when i see the warm and fuzzy prosperity style false gospel out in the world i see pharisees because they're p 
picking and choosing what parts of the scripture to follow. Now, they aren't imposing the 613 Mosaic laws on other people. That's not the analogy I'm making. The analogy is, is they're internally choosing which parts of scripture they're going to enforce. That's It's arbitrary. It's not based on other scripture, right? Like the Gospel of John says, to abide in my love is to obey my commandments and to obey my word. And based on Paul's teachings and Jesus' teachings, the scholars have come to the conclusion that we must obey the Ten Commandments and obey the New Testament in relationship to the Old Testament. Now, there's four types of laws. There's, and forgive me if I'm messing up the wording, but I think it's, it's there's judicial laws, moral laws, ceremonial laws, and civil laws. There may be a fifth, but I think there's four or five classifications of those 613 laws. So basically to what the conclusion the scholars have made based on what Jesus has said in the gospel, as well as the epistles, when, when Paul says we're not under the law, we're not under the judicial, so we don't have to put people to death, right, for certain things. That's not, that's would be condemnation. We're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, that was something specific for Old Testament Hebrew culture. There's, we're no longer under the ceremonial laws. Christ fulfilled all those. We're no longer under the civil laws. So like Jubilee, I think, if I remember correctly, every seven years, all debts are forgiven. I mean, that would be nice. Don't get me wrong, but we're not under those civil laws anymore. However, the moral and ethical laws are. Because that's the primary issues that Christ tackled in the New Testament. Okay? So, uh, to me, a Christian version of a Pharisee would be someone who picks and chooses what to follow out of the New Testament. And so I absolutely, from my personal experience, I see Pharisees and Sadducees all in Christian culture. And not only that, but I see people, I should say pseudo-Christian culture. Because it's not true Christianity, right? True Christianity is like, we must obey the Ten Commandments. We must obey the New Testament because that is how Christ, in relationship to the Old Testament, by the way, because that's how Christ says we are to abide in his love. And the greatest commandment is to love God first with your, all your heart, mind, and soul. So that's 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 the very, that's like the starting point of understanding what it means to be a Christian. It's to love God. It's not to sit back, kick your heels up, and receive God's love. No. Which is basically kind of what's been told. Not the case at all. So... Well, and, and before, I should say, before we understand what following Jesus is from the greatest commandment and then how to abide in his love, there's first must come the rebirth. And so following Jesus is not easy because of that reason, right? So we have to update our worldview and be reborn. And then after that, we have to grow into a whole new way that isn't natural. And that's after you, you update your worldview, which is to be reborn, to recognize that Jesus is God and he's the only path to heaven. Once you update your worldview, then you start with the greatest commandment, which is love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. Which means, okay, now I have to go through the Bible and find out how I am to abide in Christ's love. And what we'll all come to understand, well, and which is what, that's what the word Lord means, by the way. Being subject to obedience. Or submitting to their authority. That's what we're doing to Christ, because he commands us to live an ethical and moral life. So love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. After you're being reborn is the venture you're supposed to pursue. But the sad thing is, I've, I have yet to hear that in church at all, even though that's explicit in the Bible. So none of this is natural, by the way. In fact, it goes against you know the process of becoming holy and righteous 
it goes against our very nature because our nature is sinful. The cost of following Jesus requires us to radically, radically reorient our heart, our mind, and our soul towards the direction of holiness and righteousness. So this is, this is no easy task at all, even though it's advertised. You know, the problem is here, this is the problem. Fundamentally, I think there are people in the world who basically it and it's the spirit of arrogance. It's the spirit of arrogance where people, pastors specifically, people who consider themselves leaders are so arrogant that they think they can dilute scripture. And But the thing is, is they use scripture to justify it. So they'll be like, oh, oh, well, that's meat. They can't handle the meat. So we're going to give them the milk. It's like, okay, milk is for children. Milk is for children. Okay? Let's not be so arrogant. We're teaching church at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock on Sunday in the United States of America is filled with adults. If they can go to war and die, they can handle the truth within Scripture. It does. You don't have to just keep everybody on the, Jesus loves me, this I know. What are we doing? Like, is that the message we're supposed to tell 21-year-olds? 18-year-olds that are out having premarital sex and getting pregnant? And, de like, I'm just going to stop there. There's so much degenerate stuff going on. And what should be what we should be telling people, we should be tackling the very peer pressures and struggles that they're going to be having. We should be talking about the real world. We should talk about what's happening out in the real world. Those are the sermons that should be about, and not politics. The sermon should be about what is what are we up against as Christians today? And how does that affect or how is that in relationship to what the Bible teaches? And how are we to love God? And how are we to get to heaven? So it, and it's, all, it's all been diluted down into... It's almost as if the... The sermons are about sinners' prayers. Alright, if everybody wants to come up today and give their life to Christ. It's like, well, they don't even know what that means. So for you to even say that... It's not the right answer because you're you're deceiving someone because they they think that that's not giving your life to Christ coming up and kneeling down in front of a man and praying that is not giving your life to Christ and that's not living a life of faith. But enough enough of that. Let's talk about the next tough thing Christ said. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. When Christ said, "Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead," Jesus pressed the man to follow him now, and clearly stated that Prince excuse me, clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must, must not be put ahead of following Jesus. Jesus must come first. So this is a brutal reality for all of us to keep in the forefront of our minds. And now, it, it would be fitting, again, to remind everyone the greatest commandment, which is love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. Now, what I've seen, I've had conversations with people where they're like, well, we're supposed to love others. It's like, okay, all right. You're putting the cart in front of the horse because you're supposed to love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then you're supposed to ask yourself how to abide in his love. So no, we are not commanded to love others first at all. And I don't know how there's so much mis misinformation and confusion. It's like, to me, it's pretty straightforward. If you just get in the Bible and read it and you're curious enough, all the answers are right there for you. But again, we're up against false gospels and false teachers. 
that are just, they're casting deceit, seeds of deceit just left and right, and they have justifications for it. It's craziness. Absolutely craziest, craziness, excuse me. So, did the other scribe love Jesus? This is a question I have regarding the scribe who wanted to bury his father. Did the other scribe love Jesus first, or was he putting his family before Christ? Regarding the death of a family member, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. So imagine that your father had just died, and you asked your teacher, let's say, your spiritual teacher. It could be even pastor, priest, bishop, preacher, whatever. Your spiritual leader at the time. And you asked him, and he said, hey, we have to go on a mission trip. All right, everybody get your bags packed. And this person comes up to you and said, suffer me first and let me go bury my father. Or I need to be with my family as a support system. And the response you get from them is, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I mean, it's it's going to be, we're not coming to this church anymore. You're heartless. You're not a Christian. You, that's not the fruits of the spirit. Where's your compassion? It's like, and this just goes back to show you how people have taken from Jesus Christ his nature and blasphemed him. Because these are the types of things that he says. He's, he is not a weasel. He is a tough character. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. He's like, listen, I'm the path. That's what he's saying. I'm the path. And nothing must come before me. Nothing. Nothing at all. And there's no excuse to get up and get after it. No excuse whatsoever. There's no excuse to not pursue the path of virtue, Christian virtue, and Christian righteousness. There's no excuse whatsoever. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Because what happens is, you're gonna, the, there is a higher probability for someone to get pulled into sin than it is for them to elevate others up. And that's a terrible thing to come to understand. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Jordan Peterson talks about this with the lifeguard analogy. There's a brutal way to rescue someone if they're drowning. And it's, it's arms out, legs forward, and you kind of kick them to the edge of the pool. Because a panicking person, if they latch onto you, then you both drown. That would be stupid, right? Because if both of you drowned, then... It's way worse than just one of the one of us drowning, right? So what you do is you kick them. You kind of push them with your feet to the edge of the pool so when they grab onto something, they grab onto the edge of the pool and not you. And that's kind of what you have to do with people who are suffering. So there's a psychological lesson in there regarding spirituality as well. Sometimes people just need to be rebuked. It's like, hey man, you're on a path to destruction. I love you, and I know it doesn't feel like I love you right now because this stings, but you are on a path to destruction. And I know this because the Bible says so. And there, and we, like, if Christ comes back today, there could be many, many people who are, they're not sitting right with the Lord. But that's the thing about squandering our life. We could die tomorrow. And if we die tomorrow, every day we should wake up and ask ourselves, if I die today, where is the destiny of my soul? Where is my soul destined to go? Those are the questions that we should be asking. And so really, there's he says it right in Scripture. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You will not expect it. And we need to be ready. And that's the parable. We'll get into all the parables. But there's parables that discuss this very issue. So let's hit... Let's hit one more commentary on this topic. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. Jesus was not afraid 
to discourage potential disciples. Unlike many modern evangelicals, he was interested more in quality than in quantity. Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession. So this commentary makes brilliant points. So first of all, we need to understand that when we decide to be a Christian, we are commissioning into the Lord's army. This is not powder puff football, okay? It's not powder puff football, where we're just going to wave some bonbons and take it easy. And it's like, it's it's less than junior varsity. It's like elementary school rec ball, like third grade fall ball baseball or something like that. It's, it's nothing like that. We are commissioning into the Lord's army. We're soldiers waging war against the unseen spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Our battle is not against the flesh. The Bible's clear about that. However, there may be times where we are required to defend ourselves and others we love or others who cannot defend themselves, right? So we're not going to let anybody else harm others because we have to love others as we love ourselves. That's the second rule number two. Nothing has been more harmful than thinking just because someone professes Christ as Lord does not mean they have made a commitment to Christ or to live a life of faith. So there's there's nothing more harmful than, than simply thinking that someone professed Christ as Lord, and then, oh, that's it, now we're going to heaven, hey, welcome to the fold, brother. It's like, no, 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 let me tell you, first of all, let me tell you, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, okay? He's the path to the Father. No one comes, the Bible illuminates our path to salvation. Now, this is how we are saved, is by grace. What brings about the grace of God is faith. Now, let me explain to you what grace is with its purpose, and then we'll talk about what faith is. And then that now you're starting to get somewhere. When you fully articulate grace and faith, then you're starting to get somewhere. Because really, the first definition of faith in the dictionary is allegiance to duty. There are responsibilities and duties that come with being a Christian. That's There's no question about that. And let me ask you this. How many people do you think, if asked what faith was, would get it right? or Or would know? How many would say... Faith was allegiance to duty, fidelity of one's promises, and sincere intentions, according to the dictionary. And then would they transition to then saying, but, but, but a caveat, however, biblical faith is trust, conviction, action, and obedience. And the word is pistis. Like that, that's the level in which we, that we have to understand what faith is. How many people do you think if we asked what grace was and its purpose would respond with the definition which is unmerited divine assistance offered to human beings for their regeneration and sanctification. How many people would get the definition right? Or what about what Paul says in Romans, that the purpose of grace and apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith? And what about Paul's teachings in Titus? To bring, you know, to tr- that the purpose of grace is to train us to be, uh, re- to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Or to live, again, this is still the purpose of grace, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Or what if, or I should say, would people know that grace is also to redeem us from lawlessness? Or or for Christ to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works? I mean, it's literally, if there's anything that we should labor over in Scripture, there's three things. How to love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul, which means how to abide in his love, and the fully articulated understanding of grace, dictionarily and biblically, and the same thing with faith. So it's like 
that's the meat and potatoes of what we need to understand. Right? It's not to sit and kick your heels back. Man, the Lord's going to return. I've been redeemed. All I had to do was profess with my mouth, and all of a sudden, I'm a brand new creation. It's like, well, that's a really simplified way of explaining how to carry your cross and struggle against sin because your sinful nature never truly departs from you until you die and are resurrected in Christ. So let's not take things out of context. Kind of like the fruits of the Spirit, right? What do you expect? Everybody to have joy when they're on the cross? When they're getting scourged at the pillar, when they're suffering, when they're laboring, when Christ wept over the death of Lazarus. You know, you guys, life is way more complicated than sitting in this, just chasing our bliss. Because if the path to spiritual enlightenment, let's say, was attained by following your bliss, everybody would be a paragon of wisdom, but they aren't. Wisdom is, is hard to come by. Truly, it's hard to come by. And that's because the path to wisdom is really, it's built with challenges and trials. That's what brings about wisdom. And that's why James says that we should consider it a gift from God when we have challenges because it's an opportunity for us to grow in Christ. So I know a lot of detail today, but this topic again was the cost of following Christ. So we really have to tackle this and we have to hit it hard. Excuse me, because it's very important. So again, if there's any two words, if there's any two takeaways that, from this podcast, it is memorize grace and memorize faith, not only from the dictionary definitions, but also the biblical definitions. Take those words dead serious because our souls and our future depend on it. I hope everyone has a great day. Fight the good fight. God bless.